Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Artworks representing animals, real or imaginary, religious or secular, span the full breadth and splendor of Japanese artistic production. As the first exhibition devoted to the subject, The Life of Animals in Japanese Art covers 17 centuries, from the 5th century to the present day, and a wide variety of media. At the symposium, held on June 7, 2019, in conjunction with the exhibition, R. Keller Kimbrough explored the roles and representations of animals in Japanese picture scrolls and illustrated books from the 16th, 17th, and early 18th centuries. In particular, he addressed a series of questions pertaining to the nature of animals and humans. How should we treat animals, based on what we can learn about them in Japanese illustrated fiction? How might we choose to behave if or when we find ourselves reborn into the animal realm? I'd like to begin with a question. Animals, what are they? Also, according to traditional Japanese conceptions of the world, how are animals different from humans? First, humans and animals were believed to occupy separate yet overlapping realms. As Professor Ambrose just explained, uh, let's see, as Professor Ambrose just explained, Buddhist thought maintains that there are six realms through which unenlightened beings transmigrate according to their karma. As you can see in the present slide, these are the heavenly realm, uh, which consists of numerous separate heavens, the human realm, where we are now, the Ashura realm, which is a realm of never-ending battle occupied by beings known as Ashura, the animal realm, which overlaps with the human realm and which is a place of suffering and degradation, the realm of hungry ghosts, which also overlaps with the human realm, but which is invisible to humans, and the hell realm, which consists of multiple separate hells. Sentient beings can escape from these six realms either upon attaining enlightenment or rebirth in Amida Buddha's Pure Land Paradise, but until that time, we are all caught up in a cycle of death and rebirth as we circulate in and out of the six planes. The six realms are understood to be inter interpenetrating, but they are not all visible to us as humans. We can see animals around us, but we cannot see hungry ghosts, ashura, or other non-human or non-animal beings. The heavenly and hell realms are understood to exist apart from the human realm, but in rare cases, people are said to have visited them in the present life. We are all likely to have been animals in our previous lives, and it is possible that many of us will become animals again in our lives to come. In the 13th century, the monk Muju Ichien explained that we eat our parents whenever we eat fish or meat because all sentient beings have been both our mother and our father in a previous life. Unfortunately for animals, or for anyone reborn anywhere other than the human realm, it is said to be impossible to attain enlightenment from any place other than the human realm. Thus, as a general rule, for an animal to achieve enlightenment, it must first be reborn as a human. The six realms of transmigration are depicted in a number of 16th and 17th century paintings known as Kumano Mind Contemplation Ten Worlds Mandala, one of which you can see here. The Ten Worlds of the Mandala's title refer to the four worlds of enlightened existence and the six realms of unenlightened existence, which are also known as the six realms of transmigration. The paintings measure more than four feet wide and four feet tall, and some 50 of them are known to survive today. 
In the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, they were displayed as props by mendicant storytelling nuns known as kumanobikuni, who would have used them to preach on the nature of the 10 worlds. Unfortunately, we don't have one of these paintings here at the exhibition this time, but uh, they're on display in different places in the world. Hopefully, you'll be lucky to see one sometime. The Kumano Mind Contemplation Ten Worlds Mandala that you can see here is in the collection of the Hyogo Prefectural Museum of History in Japan. Each of the six realms is indicated by a red torii gate. The human realm is toward the upper right, which you can see here. Just inside, a semicircular depiction of the so-called Hill of Age. The animal realm is depicted in the lower right-hand corner, immediately below the Ashura realm. It is surrounded on three sides by various places within the hell realm. Here we can see the bottom part of the painting uh, indicating the four lower realms with the animal realm highlighted in green. If we zoom in further, we can see the animal realm represented here, right, this little part here, represented by a human-headed ox and a human-headed horse, as well as a goat, a snake, a dog, a deer, and a rooster. And although there's a lot going on in this image, this is, in fact, unrelated to the animal realm. This is a particular uh, area of hell, as is this. We have two women transformed into serpents, but this represents the two wives' hell for men who engage in bigamy in the present life. Uh, okay. Actually, in some paintings of this, this is a hell specifically for men, but in some paintings, the man is actually represented with a smile on his face. And here, where the <laughs> suffering really seems to be that of the women. Uh, all right. Although we don't know exactly what the Kumano nuns preached when they preached on these paintings, the depictions of oxen and horses with human heads may have been meant to show that any one of us might easily fall into the animal realm where we might become domesticated beasts exploited by humans. The human-headed animal motif is a common one in Japanese illustrated fiction. For example, we can see human-headed oxen in this hand-painted image of the court of King Emma, the judge of the dead, in the tale of the Fuji Cave, a work of 16th century Buddhist fiction that recounts a 12th century samurai's exploration of the afterworld through a mysterious cavern on the side of Mount Fuji. This next image is from a 17th century picture scroll of Yoshitsune's Harrowing of Hell, which tells of how the dead 12th century warrior Minamoto no Yoshitsune broke out of the Ashura realm to lead an invasion of the Hell realm on horses that he stole from the animal realm. And if you look closely at the horses, you can see that one of them, one of these horses here, actually is depicted with a human head, suggesting where Yoshitsune obtained it. Human-animal hybrids are said to live in strange places in our world, too. For example, in a work of 16th century fiction titled Yoshitsune's Island Hopping, Minamoto no Yoshitsune travels to a series of odd islands on his way to, a realm of the, to the realm of a demon king. One of these is Horseman Island, which is inhabited by the descendants of a man and a horse who are supposedly exiled there for, quote, having indulged in lovemaking. We can even see human-headed animals in ukiyo-e prints, uh, one of which you can see here. Uh, this is a lovely triptych by Utagawa Kuniyoshi that shows a herd of turtles with the faces of famous kabuki actors. Okay, in sum, and I'll just read from the slide here, there are four key points that I wanna make about humans and the animal realm. Number one, the human and the animal realms are separate yet overlapping. Two, the animal realm is marked by suffering and defilement. Three, people can be reborn as animals and animals can be reborn as people. And four, enlightenment is only possible from the human realm. 
in theory at least. And I say in theory because I'm gonna tell you some stories now which will actually contradict that. But supposedly, in theory, only from the human realm can one attain enlightenment. Okay, this brings us to our second question. Animals, how should we treat them? Considering what we know about animals in the animal realm, how should we treat these creatures that, that we see overlapping with our own realm? According to 16th and 17th century storytellers, the answer is not as simple as you might expect. In the tale of the uh, Fuji Cave, which you can see here, a samurai by the name of Nita no Shiro Tadatsuna encounters the great Asama Bodhisattva, the guardian deity of Mount Fuji, deep inside a cavern on Mount Fuji. The Bodhisattva befriends Nita and leads him on a guided tour of the six realms. Near the so-called mountain of death, over which all the dead must pass on their way to the court of King Emma, Nita takes in a, in a peculiar sight. And I'll read to you a little bit from the translation of this. Demon wardens were flogging a sinner who was burdened with a heavy stone. With cries of, climb, climb, demons were hounding countless others up the jagged sides of iron boulders. These are people who overloaded horses in the course of doing business, the Bodhisattva explained. They reveled in their profits and callously, callously worked their animals to death. They'll suffer constantly like this for 18,000 years. Nita, tell everyone in the human world, never overload a horse just because it can't speak. You'll go to hell if you do." End quote. Clearly, we should not be cruel to animals. According to two alternate manuscripts of the same story, if we are cruel, then the formerly abused horses and oxen themselves will become demons in the next life and torture their previous owners in hell. The image that you can see here is from a 17th century manuscript of this same work, but the scene that it shows is identical with the demon on the right chasing three human sinners up a jagged slope. Nevertheless, there is reason to believe that we should not be overly kind to animals either, as we can see from a story about a woman who was reborn as a yellow ox in the picture scrolls of the history of Seiryoji Temple, painted by the great Kano Motonobu around 1515. The history of Seiryoji is primarily concerned with the legends of the statue of Shakyamuni Buddha at Seiryoji Temple in western Kyoto. In the image on the left, you can see a monk carrying the stat a statue on his back as he travels from India to China. Then in the image on the right, you can see the statue carrying the monk on its back when the monk needs to sleep. And the statue does eventually make its way to Japan, but that's an entirely different story. Uh, in its sixth fascicle, which unfortunately is unillustrated, the history of Seiryoji tells of a woman by the name of Ankamonin who once prayed to the statue for seven years so that she might learn the location of her late mother's rebirth. The statue then delivers an oracle to her in a dream, and it explains, quote, your mother fell into hell because of her many transgressions, but you have performed various services for her with honest intent, and her punishment has been lightened as a result. She has now left hell and entered the animal realm where she has been reborn as an ox. If you wish to see her, look for the seven oxen dragging lumber from the west of the temple early tomorrow morning. Your mother will be the fourth from the front, the yellow one, that is. And I actually included a picture here. This is from a totally unrelated source. Uh, this is from the tale of Amewaka Hiko in the Museum of Asian Art in Berlin, but it does show several oxen or cows, including yellow ones, so I thought it was appropriate. So the story continues. Ankamonin awoke. Surprised by the wonder of her revelation, she went outside the western gate to wait. A yellow ox came along, just as her dream had foretold. She took it and built a temple to the west of our own, where she tethered it and fed it assorted fragrant grasses. The Buddha spoke to her again as she was feeding and caring for the beast. 
Your mother was reborn as an ox because of her karma. She was expiating her transgressions and was to achieve human rebirth as a result. But since you have been honoring her as if she were your mother, she's actually been accumulating sin. You should hitch her to a cart like any other ox and have her pull heavy loads of lumber. If you do, she is sure to achieve liberation. In accord with her revelation, Ankamonin hitched her mother to a cart and made her pull lumber. When the ox died, she held a funeral procession in its honor. She dressed it in funeral robes, and when the animal was eventually cremated, purple clouds spread in the sky, a mysterious fragrance filled the air, and a profusion of heavenly flowers fell from above, all true signs of her rebirth in the Pure Land. That's the end of the story. Filial piety is universally praised in Japanese fictional and doctrinal sources, yet despite Ankamonin's selfless intentions, her extraordinary care for the yellow ox uh, dooms her mother to additional punishment in hell. The statue explains that animals are animals because of their karma, and that to treat them otherwise may be harmful to them because of its potential to interfere with the natural expiation of their karma. Thus, while many sources caution against the abuse of animals, the history of Seiryoji warns against a different kind of mistreatment, inappropriate kindness. Okay, now we come to our third question, which is probably the most important one given that it's almost lunchtime. Animals, to eat them or not to eat them? The answer depends on whom we ask. As we have seen, Muju Ichien warned against eating fish or meat because all sentient beings have been our mother and our father in a previous life. The demon of Ibuki uh, picture scrolls in the British Museum, which we can see here, present an alternate argument for vegetarianism, that the excessive consumption of meat and alcohol can lead to a demonic transformation in the present life. The Demon of Ibuki is a 16th century prequel to the notorious tale of the demon Shutendoji, who is well known in Japanese fiction and drama for abducting young women from the capital and devouring them in his secret mountain lair. The Demon of Ibuki survives in numerous illustrated manuscripts in multiple textual lines, and it explores the reasons for Shutendoji's transformation from a human child into the sake-drinking, flesh-eating monster that he was to become. The work traces Shutendoji's taste to his father, Ibuki no Yasaburo, who we can see here gorging on a shank of deer, and who is said to have possessed an insatiable appetite for meat and drink. The British Museum scrolls explain, quote, Yasaburo was a man of clean good looks and a strong, sturdy build, but he loved sake from his youth and drank a great deal. The older he grew, the more he drank, until he came to be perpetually drunk. His mind raving, he would spew the most unreasonable abuse and perpetrate the most horrible deeds. Ah, if only I could drink my fill, he would cry to his retainers. A provincial highway lay nearby, so he took to plundering the stocks of passing merchants and guzzling those." End quote. An alternate set of scrolls in a university library in Tokyo likewise reports that Yasaburo loved sake and drank a great deal of it, and it explains, quote, Yasaburo hunted animals in the mountains and fields and feasted on them constantly. On days when he could acquire no game, he would seize the peasants' beloved horses, oxen, sheep, pigs, dogs, and chickens. Slaughtering and devouring firewood-bearing horses and plow oxen, he was like a demon to behold. When word spread that he would soon be eating people too, the locals abandoned their homes and fled in the four directions until the area around Ibuki village was reduced to uninhabited fields." End quote. 
Yasaburo's son, Shutendoji, whose name means sake drinking boy, and who we can see here after he has been abandoned in the mountains, immediately takes after his father. The British Museum scrolls explain that as a child, quote, he was constantly drunk and deranged. His spirit was ferocious. He would abuse innocent people, and dashing through the mountains and fields, he would thrash the horses and oxen that he found there, end quote. The boy takes to eating all manner of birds and beasts, and as he grows, he attracts a following of demon retainers, who we can see on the left, who bring him more meat, including deer, monkeys, pheasants, ducks, and what looks like a dog or a tanuki uh, that you can see right here. And um, Dr. Thompson, of course, told us about the 12 animals. I don't think that little Shitendoji here would hesitate to eat all of the animals of the zodiac, given the opportunity. Before his father Yasaburo's death, Yasaburo's diet had been implicitly equated with evil ascetic Buddhist practices, the performance of which would endow him with strange supernatural powers. In Shutendoji's case, the potential effects of a meaty, alcoholic diet are fully realized, and as the picture scrolls unroll, he gradually transforms before the reader's eyes from a small human boy into a brawny, terrible monster. He builds a palace in the mountains where he continues to indulge in his relentlessly carnivorous ways. Finally, at the end of the story, he takes to abducting women, enslaving them, and then eating them too. And this is really serious. I, I tell my students at the University of Colorado sometimes that after the class, or I might say after the lecture today, you might think nothing of going out for a hamburger and a beer, but it's a slippery slope, uh, as we can see with Shtendoji. And a person might find himself or herself eating people eventually, if we go down that path. Okay, still the issue of meat eating is far from settled in Japanese religious tales. A narrative known as the origins of the Sua deity, which survives in numerous illustrated and unillustrated manuscripts from the 16th through 19th centuries, suggests that people can actually help animals by eating them. And we've already heard about this from Professor Ambrose, uh, where she had the images of the three deer heads being offered at Sua Shrine. The explanation is presented in the form of an oracle from the great Sua deity, the principal deity of Sua Shrine in Nagano Prefecture, in response to a 10th century holy man who is said to have asked, for what reason should we slaughter the beasts of the mountains and fields and offer them to you? In a version of the story transcribed in 1585, the Sua deity replies by reciting a sutra-like verse in Chinese, quote, Deep in karma, sentient beings, though set free, they cannot live. Yet dwelling within humanity, they likewise obtain the fruit of the Buddha." End quote. In other words, because Buddhist enlightenment can be achieved only from the human realm, simply setting animals free, that is, leaving them unharmed in the animal realm, will do them no good. And I'm sorry, Professor Ambrose just told us about all the benefit we can achieve by setting animals free, but it, it, it sorry. It, it, it doesn't work, is what we're told. However, by incorporating animals within the realm of humanity, that is, by putting them inside our stomachs, we may allow them the possibility of enlightenment. <laughs> this is serious, this is serious stuff. Okay, this is a view that is maintained to this very day at Sua Shrine, which at its gift shop, which you can see here, sells talismanic permits and chopsticks for eating meat. Okay. Because all of us may be reborn in the animal realm someday, at which point we will probably have to make some difficult decisions, I would like to take up one final question in my talk. For animals, what are their options? Option one, escaping the animal realm through marriage. One of the works, 
Tale of the Mouse. One of the works on display here for the current exhibition is called The Tale of the Mouse. It was painted in the 16th century by an unknown artist, and it now belongs to the Suntory Museum of Art in Tokyo. The Tale of the Mouse tells of a wealthy and ambitious rodent by the name of Gon no Kami, who dreams of freeing his offspring from the animal realm by taking a human wife, marrying up in the world, so to speak. And in the present image, Gon no Kami is uh, toward, seated toward the center, right here, with his back to a golden folding screen. He can be identified by a cartouche above his head. Gon no Kami summons his closest retainer, Sakon no Jo, the hole digger, who's wearing a black robe, and he declares, what karma we must carry from our previous lives, Sakon no Jo, that we were born not only as beasts, but as such small beasts. How vexing, but I have an idea. What if I were to wed a human so that my descendants would be liberated from this realm of beasts? Sakun no Jo replies that this is a splendid idea, and they set off together in a glorious procession to Kiyomiza Temple, where they pray to the statue of the Bodhisattva Kannon that Gon no Kami may find a wife. And in this present image, we can see the, the procession, Gon no Kami, with all of his retainers and servants on his way to Kiyomiza Temple. Here we go, we have little mouse retainers with their spears. And then at the head of the procession, Gon no Kami here is riding on a, a, a beautiful white horse. But if you look closely at the horse, if you look at its face, it actually has a mouse face because it's a mouse horse for a mouse. Meanwhile, the daughter of a wealthy Kyoto merchant has been unable to find a husband. And she too has decided to visit Kiyomiza temple to pray for a spouse. In the present slide, she's depicted over toward the left here, carrying a spray of cherry blossoms. The other women are her attendants, and Kiyomiza Temple can be identified by its iconic triple-spouted fountain. Naturally, the Bodhisattva Kannon decides to put the two singletons together. And in this next image here, we can see Gon no Kami approaching the young woman on the far right. Because of the workings of the Bodhisattva, she cannot see that he is a mouse. Gon no Kami takes her back to his mansion, where he proudly weds her in a grand ceremony. All is well for a while, but then disaster strikes. The young woman becomes suspicious, and when she and her human maid peek through an open doorway, we can see her with her maid here, she sees her husband and his many retainers in their true form as dirty mice, gnawing on fish, a duck, and bowls of rice. And if I can just interrupt myself here, again, I, I tell my students, you know, you, you have to watch out. Um, it, it can be very easy to get married, more difficult to become unmarried. And many of us have been there. When you wake up one morning, a few months after the honeymoon, and you discover that your spouse is actually an animal. Uh, so in any case, uh, uh, I, I talk too much. OK, the woman runs away. She gets a cat. And she warns her husband that he should never try to see her again, because she has a cat. OK, so option one, escape by marriage does not go well in this case. Gon no Kami's failure therefore brings us to option two, escaping the animal realm through Buddhism. The picture that I would like to, a picture scroll that I would like to discuss in connection with the second strategy is also in the collection of the Suntory Museum of Art in Tokyo. It is the 16th century Sparrow's Buddhist Awakening, which begins as follows. Quote, at a time not so long ago, something peculiar happened in Katayama village in the Miya district of Yamato province. There was an especially cheeky little fellow by the name of Kotoda the Sparrow. Seeking out a proper spouse, he told her of his love and sealed a bond with her for the rest of their lives and beyond. They shared a profound affection, like lovebirds with wings as one. One spring, the wife found herself unusually out of sorts. 
Kotoda was distressed, but when her condition turned out to be nothing other than the pains of pregnancy, he too was overjoyed. He immediately built a birthing nest. The days eventually passed, and then, without incident, there was a child to raise. Once, when the couple was out seeking sustenance, a snake mercilessly swallowed their little bird. Never imagining what had occurred, they came home with some food. But when they looked around, their baby was gone. What could have happened, they cried. Their shock and confusion were beyond compare." End quote. Kotoda sees the snake, which you can see here on the right side of the image, and he quickly realizes what has occurred. He angrily berates the serpent, who simply slithers off into the grass after declaring that he too has to eat. In his morning, Kotoda receives a series of 13 visitors, all of whom are birds, and each of whom offers him a poem in condolence. Here, Kotoda receives a verse from a white heron, whose poem is inscribed in the air above his head. Kotoda replies to each of the birds with a verse of his own, suggesting that if we could only understand them, the songs of birds would sound to us like the poems of people. In this slide, we can see Kotoda receiving and then replying to a poem from a pheasant. Later, Kotoda has a talk with his wife. He explains to her that given the loss of their child, he can no longer live, in the world, live on in the world as he did before. He has decided in order to leave her to become a monk. The wife, too, decides to become a nun, and upon exchanging poems, the two sparrows fly their separate ways. Kotoda seeks out a priestly owl on a holy mountain, and he asks him to shave his head and administer monastic vows. Then Kotoda sets out on a lonely peregrination through the provinces. He composes poems as he travels, much in the manner of the great 12th century poet priest Saigyo. He visits Kiyomiza temple, which we can see here, and where Gon no Kami met his wife in the previous story. And at the end of the scrolls, he builds himself a hermitage, where he spends his remaining years engaged in Buddhist practice. As we can see in its illustrations, the sparrow's Buddhist awakening depicts Kotoda's transformation from lay to monastic, and somewhat more subtly, from animal to human. In the first part of the story, Kotoda is depicted as a bird fluttering in the trees, but upon taking the tonsure, he is shown in traditional Buddhist garb, and he walks instead of flies. By abandoning secular life, Kotoda seems to attain partial release from the animal realm, thus achieving a higher level of existence as a quasi-human monk. The Sparrow's Buddhist awakening ends well for Kotoda. He lives to the age of 100 and then attains rebirth in Amida Buddha's Pure Land Paradise. But for animals who may not wish to become monastics, or to marry humans for that matter, what are their remaining options? First, they might try to get along with each other, a choice that I have titled Option 3, Making Nice. <laughs> the present image is the one with which I started my talk this morning, a famous scene from the 12th or 13th century scrolls of frolicking animals in the possession of Kozanji Temple in Kyoto. As you can see from the reaction of the two mice in the foreground when they spy a cat that's here in the back, uh, the animal realm can be a frightening place, especially if you are a mouse. Nevertheless, things do not have to be this way, as we can see from the end of the tale of the mouse. Having been abandoned by his human wife, Gon no Kami concludes that he has nothing left to live for in the secular world, and he too decides to take monastic vows. Like Kotoda, he sets off on a religious pilgrimage, only to encounter a cat monk on the road. <laughs> And we can see here, Gon no Kami now as a monk is walking along, he sees the cat, and in the next scene he falls down in fright. Ha! It's a cat. 
Uh, but the cat quickly reassures him. The cat says that now that he's become a monk, he's given up his evil feline ways, and he's no longer a danger. The two, Gon no Kami and the cat, become best friends, as we can see them here, praying together at the end of the scrolls. Um, and this, I would like to argue, is a scene that really offers hope to mice in the animal realm. <laughs> okay. But what can we do when cats will not be friends? Option four, not making nice. The problem is clearly illustrated in the present slide, a scene from a fragmentary work that has been tentatively titled A Tale of Mice, in which a naked cat to the left over here, oh, sorry, wrong, wait, wrong button. There we go, the cat over here, uh, brutally interrupts what seems to have been an elegant mouse picnic. The well-dressed mice all flee in a panic, and some of them fall into a river in their fright. Here we can see a close-up image of the cat who seems to be grinning as he grasps a hapless victim in his mouth. The surviving mice convene a conference and they conspire to attach bells to the collars of the local cats so that they may hear them coming. And here the mice are gathered around and they've got bells in the center that they're going to attach to the cat collars. The mice here are clever, but they can hardly compare to the mice in the picture scroll of the mice of Mount Oe, an early 18th century parody of the picture scrolls of the tale of the demon Shutendoji. The picture scroll of the mice of Mount Oe survives in a single copy in a private collection in Texas. And according to its title slip, which you can see here, it was painted by Hanabusa Icho, who is best known today both for his giga, or playful images, and for his exile from the city of Edo in 1698 for the apparent crime of satirizing one of the shogun's concubines. In the original tale of the demon Shtendoji, the emperor commands the warrior Minamoto no Raiko and his men to hunt down and kill the demon Shtendoji to put an end to his abduction of young women from the capital. In the picture scroll of mice of Mount Oe, a mouse emperor, who we can see on the far right, commands his mouse warriors to hunt down and kill a terrible cat who has been abducting and eating mice. Disguised as Buddhist mountain ascetics, the mice make their way to the demon's stony lair, the gate of which, you can see on the left, is guarded by three demon cat retainers. The mice are invited inside, where they are encouraged to feast on a dismembered mouse on a cutting board. The cat demon, Shtendoji, is depicted at the upper left. He plans to eat his visitors later, but first he watches as one of the mice dances for his entertainment. That night, after the cat retires, the mice don their armor and break into his sleeping chamber and cut off his head. Before it dies, the decapitated head tries to bite the men, the mice men, from above, but the mice escape unharmed. Then, in a grand mouse parade, they carry the great orange cat head back with them to their capital. And here we can see the mouse parade. And I want to show you a close-up of the right-hand portion. We can see various mice retainers uh, accompanying the main warriors. The main one's on a horse, which is really a horse, not a mouse in this case. And the little retainers, each of them have the character ne written on their robes, which presumably would indicate nezumi, or mouse, in Japanese. Okay. The artist's choice to represent the demon Shtendoji as a cat is clever insofar as domestic cats, like the legendary Shtendoji, are known for capturing and carrying home their living prey in order to play with it before eating it. For mice, cats probably do represent, uh, re resemble demons. We can imagine that the mice, chipmunks, baby squirrels, birds, and even grasshoppers that have witnessed or survived the horrors of a cat attack would dream of the glory of slaying such a monster and taking its head. 
Unfortunately, the picture scroll of the mice of Mount Oe does nothing to promote peace in the animal realm. Unlike the tale of the mouse, which ends with a heartwarming friendship between a jilted mouse and a monastic cat, the mice of Mount Oe uh, takes only the side of the anthropomorphic mice, emphasizing their bravery while literally demonizing their feline foes. In addition, by telling his story from the perspective of the warrior mice, the artist unites his audience in opposition to the demon cat making mice of us all. I would like to end with a photo of my own two cats, <laughs> Ruby and Cotton, which of course have nothing to do with Japanese uh, art, uh, but who I imagine would consider the picture scroll of the mice of Mount Oe and the tale of uh, the mouse to be equally preposterous. They might ask, who could have thought of such ridiculous stories? And why would anyone want to leave the animal realm? They too are great fans of mice. So, thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.